Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Rules of Medical Necessity, a Fredrickson and Bryson Professor of Law appointment lecture featuring Professor Daniel Schwartz, discusses the different ways that health insurers are undermining the legal constraints on their coverage determinations. Professor Schwartz explores how federal and state actors can push back on these insurer efforts to avoid legal oversight of their medical necessity determinations. Schwartz's talk will be based on his draft article, Rules of Medical Necessity, which is co-authored with Professor Amy Monahan and is forthcoming in the Iowa Law Review. Professor Daniel Schwartz is an award-winning teacher and scholar. His research focuses on a broad range of issues in insurance law and regulation, spanning systemic risk, regulatory federalism, consumer protection, employer-sponsored health insurance, and insurance coverage litigation. This event was recorded on November 18th, 2021. It is also available for viewing on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Welcome uh, faculty, staff, students, and friends. In addition to those of us who are obviously all here together in the room, uh, we have about 40 people on Zoom uh, joining us. So we welcome our Zoomers as well. That's where the camera is. Uh, we welcome our camera, our, our Zoomers as well. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Gary Jenkins. I'm the Dean of the Law School. And today's gathering is a very long-awaited occasion. <laughs> the investiture of Professor Dan Schwartz as the Fredrickson and Byron Professor of Law. You see, Dan received this title in 2019 with the investiture originally planned for April 2020. Well, we all know what happened, uh, that, but, um, but we're glad to be here now and to finally have this glorious occasion. Uh, before I begin uh, some, some remarks about Dan, I want to first um, invite all of you who are here with us in person to a reception immediately following the lecture. And that reception is going to be upstairs, uh, one level in Auerbach Commons. Also, we will have Stein Terrace, which is adjacent, uh, open as well and we'll have uh, light refreshments, including a hot chocolate bar. <laughs> and I see some really excited faces for the hot chocolate bar right here. Now, an investiture of a name professorship is especially meaningful in higher education. It acknowledges the highest levels of research, teaching, and service. It's also a time to celebrate the honoree and to honor those who make academic excellence possible. In this case, uh, the Fredrickson and Byron professorship was created in 1986 by the Fredrickson firm uh, and their foundation. Uh, the professorship seeks to enrich and expand teaching, research, and scholarship at the law school by making it possible to attract and retain legal scholars of national renown and reputation. So I wanna thank our friends 
at Fredrickson and Byron, who have made this generous gift possible. And those Fredrickson attorneys and alumni, some of whom uh, are here, are uh, watching on Zoom, uh, your support for our world-class teacher scholars here at Minnesota Law is so valued, so appreciated, uh, and really so instrumental in ensuring that we support the health of the legal community here in the Twin Cities uh, by keeping this law school strong and successful. So, so we thank you. The prior holder of the Fredrickson professorship was a legendary faculty member, David Weisbrod. As you all know, we lost David last week. He was a beloved teacher and mentor at the law school for four decades, uh, a giant in the field of human rights, a professor who helped shape our law school and the Minnesota nonprofit landscape, and of course, the study and practice of human rights. I'm gonna ask all of you to join me in a short moment of silence in honor of David Weisbrod and his legacy. Thank you. When I thought about filling the chair that had been held by David, I wanted to make sure that the next holder was the kind of professor who makes a huge impact in their field, who loves teaching, who loves our students and does everything they can to help them succeed. Someone who might not yet be legendary, but was certainly a legend in the making. And today it is my pleasure to formally install our terrific colleague and friend, Dan Schwartz as the Fredrickson and Byron Professor of Law. Congratulations. <laughs> Professor Schwartz earned his AB from Amherst College as JD from Harvard Law. While in law school, he was an articles editor on the Harvard Law Review and a John M. Olin Fellow in Law and Economics. After law school, he clerked for Sandra Lynch on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit and practiced at the law firm of Ropes and Gray. He spent two years as a Clemenco Fellow at Harvard Law School, which is actually when we first met. Uh, Dan, see, I, don't, I, didn't, I wasn't sure if you remembered. Um, I was a junior professor and somehow I, I, well, not somehow, I know how. I ended up at a party uh, when I was visiting my friend and it was all the Clemencos uh, there. So I crashed basically a Clemenco party and that's how I met Dan. Um, but, uh, but I really got to know Dan um, when I joined the faculty here. Of course, he was already um, a well-established member of the faculty since he joined Minnesota in 2007. Uh, he's been teaching courses on contract law, insurance law, financial regulation of financial institutions, health insurance, judicial opinion writing, and legal analysis for undergraduates. He has twice received the Stanley V. Kenyon Teacher of the Year Award in 2008 and 2012. He's also an award-winning scholar. His research focuses 
on a broad range of insurance law and regulation issues spanning from systemic risk to consumer protection to insurance coverage litigation. In 2017, the prestigious American Law Institute awarded him its highly selective Early Career Scholars Medal, which is an award given every two years to just one or two, quote, outstanding law professors whose work is relevant to public policy and has the potential to influence improvements in the law relevant to the real world. Dan's scholarship has been published in a wide range of leading law reviews and journals, including the University of Chicago, Virginia, UCLA, Southern California Law Reviews, among others. He's also the co-author of the leading insurance law casebook in the country used at more than 100 law schools across the country. And he regularly advises commissions, Congress, and other experts in his area. Today, he will talk about the rules of medical necessity. Now, some of you may know, particularly the faculty members, that I typically present a small gift at the investiture. Um, lately, it's been these beautiful glass bookends. Well, Dan, the universe has determined that 19 months is not long enough for you to wait for your bookends. Uh, the COVID holiday shipping uh, delays have impacted us all, okay? Um, we were told it would be here by mid-December, and we decided, though, not to move the investiture again. Um, so uh, while I don't have the glass bookends, I am pleased to congratulate you uh, upon your receiving the Frederick Byron Professorship in Law. Congratulations. I don't know what I'm going to do without those bookends. <laughs> Thank you again. My, my daughter took away that from that whole thing. Look, I told you, you're not legendary. <laughs> so that's her assessment. <laughs> um, so today I'm going to be, uh, I just want to, of course, thank everyone for being here. Thank the Fredrickson and Byron firm for establishing this chair and thank uh, students and colleagues and family for being here. I owe a particular uh, debt of gratitude to my colleague, Amy Monahan, who helped me uh, uh, work out some of the themes I'm going to be discussing today and is a co-author on the article that I will be discussing. Um, before I start discussing it, though, I thought I would just take a second to talk about some broader context, because as you'll see, and as you may have uh, uh, already anticipated, I'm gonna be talking about insurance policies. And that's not that unusual for me, which, <laughs> why on earth would you study insurance policies for a living? Um, well, there are some answers that I, I, I think will be a little bit illuminating, I hope, about why insurance policies and insurance more generally can teach us about a broad range of subject matters that perhaps are more intuitively interesting to you than insurance itself. For those of you who are first-year law students, and I know that there are a number of you in the crowd, you might uh, think, well, 
I'm studying things like tort law and how does tort law work in the real world? Well, it turns out that the terms of general liability insurance end up having a tremendous influence on the way that tort law operates. For instance, the fact that most general liability insurance policies have exclusions for intentional misconduct and fraud oftentimes causes parties who have been injured in accidents to frame the resulting litigation, not in terms of intentional misconduct, which would result in the defendant's liability insurer not being available to pay, but instead in terms of negligence, which would indeed trigger liability insurance and thus makes not only potential monetary compensation easier to secure, but potentially faster as well, because there's a liability insurer at the end of the litigation rainbow. Now maybe tort law isn't your thing. Maybe you're interested in other areas of law, like corporate law or securities law. But there too, insurance policies end up having a tremendous influence on how the law works in practice. So for instance, most DNO insurance policies, which protect directors and officers of corporations against certain securities and corporate law risks, have exceptions in them for fraud. But it turns out that those exceptions generally only apply if the fraud has been litigated. And so what does that mean? Well, it helps to explain a really fundamental feature of a lot of securities litigation, which is that it almost always settles. Why does it almost always settle? Well, one reason is because the directors and officers who are behind that litigation and the defendants and making some of the decisions don't want it to go to trial because they don't want any fraud adjudicated, not just for the obvious reasons, but perhaps for the less obvious reason that an adjudicated determination of fraud would limit the availability of their DNO insurance. Now, you might say, ah, corporate law, tort law, this is all boring. Well, let's get bigger picture. How about climate change? And I say, well, obviously we all care about climate change. I hope we all care about climate change. It turns out that understanding the structure of insurance policies and products can really help us understand how climate change is evolving. Because at the end of the day, one of the fundamental features of property insurance policies is that they are only an annual one-year contract where there is no guarantee of renewal at all. And so what that means is that property insurers don't have a long-term obligation to insure your property. And as a result, it turns out that most property insurers don't really bear very much climate change risk because each year they can just raise your premiums or as happens, is already happening and is currently happening in California, decide simply not to issue you a policy at all. And so if we want to enable real reform on climate change and recruit actors that have the clout to affect change in that arena, it turns out that changing the structure of property insurance can really make a difference. Other topics where understanding the structure of insurance can really fundamentally inform our worldview. 
the 2008 financial crisis, something I lived through, something that occurred as my daughter Orly was born. Turns out life insurers played a tremendous role in that, something no one really anticipated. AIG was one of the largest, I think still is, the largest private recipient of bailout funds in the history of the United States, not a bank. Well, how is that? Well, understanding the structure of the insurance policies they issued, which for instance, guaranteed policyholders against certain market risks, helps us understand why life insurers were so central to that crisis. So too, does understanding the inherent optionality built in to certain life insurance and annuity products that can result in those products actually operating more like bank accounts and bank deposits than traditional insurance. And of course, that brings us to our topic for today, which is health insurance. Because what I'm gonna to try to convince you of in the next 30 or so minutes is that the structure of health insurance policies has a fundamental influence on the way that healthcare is rationed in this country. So let's get to the basic argument I want to present to you. The core argument is this. The core argument I want to make to you is that all of the laws and regulations we have that are designed to limit health insurers' discretion in whether or not they're gonna pay for your care are premised on certain assumptions about the way health insurance policies are structured. They're premised on the idea that health insurance policies are structured to give health insurers lots of discretion about whether or not they think medical care is medically appropriate. And yet, the reality is that the contracts have changed fundamentally in recent years. And they've changed fundamentally in ways that undermine the capacity of law and regulation to serve this purpose of actually operating as an effective constraint on health insurers. So that we actually live in a world these days where health insurers have virtually unfettered discretion to determine whether or not the healthcare that your doctor orders is going to be covered because it is deemed medically necessary or not. So in explaining this, I'm gonna sort of break it down. The first thing I'm gonna do is just describe to you the traditional structure of health insurance policies. The story that we're told in the books that before we started doing our research was sort of the paradigm for how health insurance contracts were thought to be structured. But what I'm gonna show you in part two of this talk is that that traditional story is no longer accurate. That health insurers, as any party can, have changed how they design their contracts with policyholders. And in doing so, what I'm going to suggest to you, they have undermined the assumptions that are baked into each of the key regulatory and legal constraints on health insurers' decisions. 
thus resulting in a world where health insurers do not face constraints, which, or at least face many fewer constraints than was intended. And that result, I'll suggest to you, is problematic. For that reason, I'll offer some thoughts about what we should do about it. So that's the basic plan, so let's get to it. So first, let me tell you the conventional story. And this conventional story explains how health insurance contracts have been structured uh, uh, since 1960s and 70s when health insurance really started emerging. The basic structure of health insurance could be understood through a pretty familiar and powerful legal paradigm of rules versus standards. Rules are principles that don't really require a lot of discretion to apply. They're pretty mechanistic. Standards, on the other hand, are principles that actually require a lot of discretion. They don't tell you how to decide things one way or another. They impart upon an ultimate decision maker discretion to use their judgment based on a variety of broad factors to render a fair and accurate decision. So your paradigmatic example of rules versus standards involves speed limits. 60 miles per hour, that's a rule. Doesn't require a lot of discretion to apply. You're either going over or under. I can use a radar gun and answer the question. Standards, well, I don't know if this exists anymore, but it used to be the case that in certain parts of the country, it would just say, drive at a fair and reasonable speed. And it didn't say 60 miles per hour, but sometimes, you know, you can go faster than 60 miles per hour, right? If it's nice and sunny, there aren't any cars out, you're on a straightaway. Other times, you know, even going 50 might not be safe. And so the idea was instead of being mechanistic, we'll just be uh, uh, general. So this is, this paradigm helps us understand how health insurance policies were traditionally structured. There were certain rules, but those rules were limited to what I call categorical coverage exclusions. We don't cover dental. We don't cover vision. We don't cover cosmetic surgery. It wasn't about trying to figure out whether medical care was appropriate for a particular individual based on their circumstances. It was just about defining certain types of medical care that did or did not fall within the purview of the health insurance contract. When it came, though, to determining if we are in a certain type of covered care, like surgery for heart attacks, we're not gonna cover any surgery for heart attacks or any procedures for you know, EKGs or whatever else. We're only gonna cover it if it's medically necessary. And that term, which policed not certain categories of care, but policed the appropriateness of a covered type of care for a particular type of individual, was policed via a standard. The standard being medical necessity, which was usually defined, there were a lot of different definitions, but usually defined in a way that amounted to a requirement that the care be appropriate under the circumstances, based upon prevailing views of doctors and medical experts. 
And you could, you know, define it in different ways. But the idea was, you know, we can't define ahead of time what's medically appropriate for particular. If we could, you wouldn't need doctors, right? So instead of trying to spell out in a contract what a doctor should do all the time, we're just going to say medically necessary. And this division, where we had certain categories of care that were carved out from coverage in a rule-like way, but otherwise we only covered care that was appropriate as judged by broad standards, was the basic idea for how health insurance policies were structured. But actually triggered by some of our own personal medical adventures over the years, started realizing that the story that I had read, that I had told myself in my insurance law casebook and written about, wasn't always so accurate. Because what I started seeing was that more and more there were what I now call, what we call, I should say, rules of medical necessity. What is a rule of medical necessity? Well, let me define my terms. It's simply a rule, a rule, not a standard, that narrows the circumstances in which an otherwise covered treatment will be covered or deemed medically necessary for individual patients based upon their individual circumstances. So in other words, instead of saying we cover X type of care but not Y type of care, it says we'll cover X type of care for ABC type of patient in XYZ circumstances. And what I started seeing is that even though traditionally that type of scenario was governed by the standards, more and more we started seeing that they were governed by rules. How does this happen? How can you write an insurance policy, all the different ways in which a doctor should or should not decide what's medically appropriate care? Well, one of the prevailing strategies that we realized was out there was incorporation by reference of these lengthy medical policies. Turns out that health insurers have lengthy medical policies. You go on a website, you can Google it yourself, just choose a health insurer and select medical policies. Sometimes they're called utilization review criteria. They have different names. But lengthy rules about what they consider to be medically appropriate and what they consider not to be. But these aren't just any rules. Increasingly, we started seeing that these rules are incorporated by reference formally in insurance policies. Now, in some cases, you see examples like this, where it's only for a specific type of medical care. So for instance, you might have a health insurance policy that says, look, we're only going to cover amino acids, oral amino acids, if it meets the criteria established by our medical policies, which are available online. And what that means is that the medical policies become part of the formal contractual obligations at least potentially, of the health insurer. But it goes well beyond that because we also started seeing attempts to define holistically all of medical necessity for all types of care based on libraries of medical policies and attempts to incorporate them by reference. So what does this mean? Well, here's just one example. 
The medical policy might say something like, well, we'll cover proton beam radiation therapy. This is a particular type of radiation for cancer. If we're dealing with a patient who has undergone a biopsy or partial resection of the chordoma or low-grade chondrosa chroma of the blastoid region. I have no idea what that means. But you can see how rule-like that is. It doesn't give a lot of discretion. It's not a question of, gee, I have a patient where this isn't true, but I still think they are entitled to proton beam radiation therapy or they would benefit for proton radiation therapy. It doesn't matter. And what we saw is that these aren't just policies of the health insurer, but they're becoming formal parts of the contract. Now, we also started seeing this within insurance policies itself. So terms that didn't just incorporate by reference other medical policies, but that just had baked right in to the insurance policy certain rules. So for instance, we saw terms like this. We'll only cover surgery for weight loss if you have a body mass index of greater than 35 with complicating coexisting medical conditions or diabetes, such as sleep apnea or diabetes. Again, it's not a question of we'll cover, if we cover weight loss surgery, we'll cover it when it's medically necessary. And it might be medically necessary for someone who has a BMI of 33, or has a BMI of 40 but doesn't have coexisting, or, or has one coexisting morbidity. No, you've gotta follow the rule or else there's not coverage. We saw other things as well. For instance, we started seeing in insurance policies these provisions that didn't actually contain the rules, but said we're authorized to create these rules. So once we started seeing these things, we're saying, well, gee, how common is this? I mean, how pervasive is this phenomenon? And so we started trying to look at it a bit systematically. I won't bore you with the details about how we did that, but we tried to at least group different insurance policies into different buckets depending upon the extent of rulification, and to get a pretty broad sampling across the country, across a number of different insurers regarding the extent to which they were shifting towards this rulification of health insurance. And so we categorize based on, look, they don't have any rules, they follow the conventional approach, they have a mixed approach, they have some rules, like maybe for weight loss surgery or amino acids or what have you, but in other cases, they just say, we'll cover it if it's medically necessary and leave it at that. Or situations where there is full rulification. We will only cover medical care if it's medically necessary as per our medical criteria, which are hereby incorporated by reference and include hundreds of complex multi-page rules specifying when particular procedures are medically necessary. And here's a snapshot of what we found. We found rulification is pervasive, and that about a third of the insurance policies we looked at across the country purported to incorporate by reference a full suite of comprehensive medical policies. We also found that for the other two-thirds, there was at least partial rulification. In other words, certain 
types of medical care were only covered if they were deemed medically necessary per some specific rule. Now this is obviously a big category, so we tried to break it down a bit. How many types of care are we talking about here? This varies a lot too. Sometimes it's only one or two. Sometimes the policy might just have a rule about weight loss surgery, which is a pretty common one. But sometimes we're dealing with a dozen or more types of medical care where there are very specific rules defining when you are or are not entitled to coverage based upon your particular presentation. We also have some evidence that, of course, this rulification is increasing significantly. So the question then becomes, so what? Why should you care about how health insurance policies are changing? Sounds pretty boring to me. Well, the answer is that we have a variety of tools that are designed to limit the risk that health insurers will be too aggressive in denying care because health insurers face a pretty obvious conflict of interest. They make more money if they deny more care, at least in the short term. Now, of course, there are countervailing elements, there's reputation, but if you don't have any legal or regulatory constraints, you're certainly at least gonna have instances where certain health insurers try to deny care for particularly expensive forms of treatment, particularly if they can even sort of make a plausible, if not convincing case, that the medical science supports them. And so we have all these rules that were developed in the 80s and 90s to limit this risk. For instance, we have these rules that require insurers to have internal processes that allow you to contest their coverage determination. And those rules require that if a health insurer denies coverage because it thinks that what your doctor said and ordered is not medically necessary, that you have the right to go to that insurer and to say, I wanna to talk to someone else at that insurer who's the boss of the first person who has medical necessity, medical training, who's a doctor. And I'm gonna have my doctor talk to their doctor and explain why, yes, we need proton beam radiation therapy here. Or yes, we need this type of surgery or this type of chemotherapy. The idea then is to allow many of these disputes to be resolved internally by doctors, where your doctor can talk to the insurer's doctor and explain why a particular treatment is medically necessary. Makes some sense. The problem is that once we have rulification of medical necessity, these rules don't make as much sense. Because the question the insurer has to ask is not, gee, is this medically appropriate? It doesn't matter if it's medically appropriate if there's a specific rule that says, I'm sorry, you don't get weight loss surgery if your BMI is over 30 or under 35. And having a doctor explain that to another doctor isn't gonna change that. So what rules of medical necessity do is convert what's supposed to be a check on medical discretion into a box checking exercise. 
Was your BMI, in fact, lower than 35 or above? Did you, in fact, get this treatment or above? But there's no substantive review of whether the underlying rule is appropriate, because that's not what internal review is supposed to be about. And in fact, because of that, it very well may be the case, and we don't actually know this, but if you read the rules, you might not even need a doctor to do the internal review, because it doesn't take medical training to say, I'm sorry, your chart says that your BMI was not 35. And if it doesn't take medical training to answer a coverage determination, you're not even entitled to have a doctor at the insurer review that determination. It becomes a bureaucratic box checking exercise, which was not the intent. Well, many people might be skeptical, skeptical of internal review, but how about external review? Because for a long period of time, we realized that well, this isn't gonna do a lot. Your insurer might just say, yes, we deny coverage. We need some independent expert that will be there to assess whether or not the insurer's medical judgment is accurate. And so every state or many states created this form of external review where the idea was you'd be able to go to doctors who are not affiliated with your insurer. And if your insurer said, I'm not gonna cover this treatment that was ordered by your doctor because I don't think it's medically necessary or appropriate, you'd be able in relatively short order without a lot of expense to go to independent doctors who would tell you whether or not the insurer was right or your doctor was right. But as with internal review, these statutes were drafted on the assumption that the operative language in the insurance policies was, we cover medically necessary treatments. And so these statutes were drafted to specify that external reviewers do not have the authority to order medical treatment if the underlying insurance contract or plan does not cover that treatment. And so, as a result, external review becomes largely pointless if your insurer denied coverage because you did not meet its rule. If the rule says, you are not entitled to weight loss surgery if your BMI is not under 35. An external reviewer is not legally authorized in almost every state. Minnesota may actually be an exception. But in almost every state, the external reviewer is not authorized to say, look, you don't meet this rule, but I think your doctor's right. Weight loss surgery is right for you. Or this chemotherapy is right for you based on these unusual circumstances. And so the ruleification of medical necessity undermines the capacity of external review to act as a check on insurers' decisions of healthcare because external reviewers can't question those rules if they're part of your insurance policy. That is not within their legal authority. All right, but we're all lawyers and law students or potential lawyers or law students. There's always court, right? You can sue, you can sue. And traditionally, that's what people did. You're denied coverage 
for some treatment or care that your doctor recommends, your health insurer denies coverage, the internal process doesn't work, the external process doesn't work, you can sue. And traditionally what that meant is you could go to court and you could have your medical experts say, yes, this treatment is medically appropriate. The insurer overstepped in refusing to cover this. But the underlying legal regimes are either contract law or ERISA. And either way you slice it, once these rules become part of the insurance plan or the insurance policy, the courts essentially lose their authority to second guess the insurer's judgment. If the insurance policy says we cover medically necessary care, then we're gonna have a trial about whether or not this particular treatment was medically necessary. And we'll have experts on both sides, and a judge or a jury will decide. And that will limit an insurer's capacity to deny coverage when they shouldn't do so. But if your insurance policy says we do not cover weight loss surgery if your BMI is under 35 or if you have a tumor in this region but not in this region, then it's a matter for a motion to dismiss. Sorry, there's a contract. It's very clear what it means. It's very clear that it applies. I don't have the authority to just refuse to enforce the contract. So there's no check at all via litigation. Now again, there's some subtlety here. Some courts have pushed on the idea that the incorporation by reference is effective. So they say, oh, you tried to incorporate by reference your rules of medical necessity, but maybe you weren't clear enough in how you did it. Or maybe you didn't make those available to policyholders. Let me tell you, that's not a big constraint because insurers can and have dealt with that more and more effectively. They make their incorporation by reference more explicit. They make their rules publicly available online. And so the doctrinal avenues for courts to second guess the medical determinations that are baked into rules of medical necessity are coming to an end. Now, I don't have time to talk about this too much, but a fourth type of constraint that exists are mandated benefits, which are intended to say, look, insurers, we want you to cover certain types of care just because we think it's a pub public policy. Obamacare actually requires all health insurers to cover so-called essential health benefits. But the problem exists in this context as well, because these mandates oftentimes, though not always, allow health insurers to implement the mandate while also determining whether or not the particular procedure or drug that's the subject of the mandate is medically necessary. So while, for instance, you're entitled, say, to you know, rehabilitation services for a child who has autism, and that's a mandate, the insurer gets to decide whether or not those rehabilitation services are medically necessary. And they can actually adopt formal rules and then make them part of their insurance policies in a way that actually creates some real barriers to access and differences across insurers 
notwithstanding the existence of an ostensibly uniform mandate. So is this all a problem? Well, to some extent, your answer to that is going to depend on your priors. Should health insurers have free discretion to make determinations of medical necessity? Maybe, if you think markets work, if you think that employers will hold them accountable, if you think that policyholders will hold health insurers accountable. But I think many of us have the instinct that while that may be true some of the time for some health insurers, we can't simply allow them to determine what is medically covered and what's not when people's lives are on the line. So there are a variety of ideas we have for how to address this. And I can spend more time addressing this in q and I want to be cognizant of the fact that we're already uh, bumping up against the time that we had allowed for it. But let me just mention one or two. One that I particularly like, and I think this is one place where maybe Amy and I have different instincts about what the best solutions might be, involves allowing insurers to use rules of medical necessity, but only at the initial claims handling stage. So they can have their rules, they can apply those rules, but once you appeal externally, once you go to litigation, then those rules are no longer operative. In other words, then we mandate that all medically necessary care is covered, and it doesn't matter what you put in your insurance policy to the contrary. That then would allow for some of the efficiency of rules of medical necessity, because surely there are some. We want consistency. We want transparency about what's covered. And those are paradigmatic benefits of rules. But at the same time, it would allow external forces, independent doctors, judges, and juries to call out insurers who adopt rules that are overly restrictive and that limit coverage to care that is in fact medically established or sufficiently established that they're the type of care we feel like people are entitled to when they have health insurance. So I'm happy to talk about any more of these solutions, but I wanna make sure to leave time for questions. And so I think my Daughters will be very happy if I stop talking and open up the floor to questions. All right, go ahead, Kristen. Professor Hickman. Oh, I don't know. Here, well, I'll just repeat your question. I'll just talk. Um, so, the way you have presented the rulification insurance policy at least, you know, in terms of the, the rationale for them has largely been one of profit motive. But I do wonder, oftentimes rulification in the regulatory sphere comes from concerns about discrimination that arises from discretion. And so to what extent do you think that that has influenced this I absolutely do. And I will say I do not believe Yes, sorry. So the question was, to what extent is the trend of rulification driven not necessarily by health insurers' pursuit of profit, but also by 
other goals that are perhaps more noble, like preventing unreasonable discrimination, or to add to that, improving transparency, or to add to that, improving the actual accuracy of medical necessity determinations by canvassing the literature with experts and having them put down their expert view in a way that you know, some initial low-level claims handling person would not be able to do. And I think all of that is very true. In fact, I think in many ways, rules of medical necessity are great because they achieve those goals and they're entirely defensible. And I would not want to be understood to be suggesting that we should entirely jettison them or that they have no benefits at all. I mean, rules versus standards, we all know there are arguments on both sides. But I think the problem comes irrespective of what the motives of insurers are, when the result of rulification is that there is no external check on whether or not the rules that insurers adopt reflect an appropriate balancing of policyholder interests and insurer interests. And I think that even if we can have all these justifications for rulification, it doesn't follow that we shouldn't have any way of determining or scrutinizing whether the ultimate rules that are adopted go too far in limiting access to medically appropriate care. Because this is not all theoretical. There have been many documented cases of health insurers adopting rules that deny access to life-saving care where the medical record is pretty clear and the scientific literature is pretty clear that the treatment in question is established. And even if there are lots of good reasons for rulification of these policies, I think we need to have that check to make sure that it doesn't go too far. And so that's why some of my solutions, some of our solutions, are not just get rid of ban rules of medical necessity entirely, but things like allow them to be used to the internal claims handling stage, to ensure we don't have discrimination, to ensure consistency, to promote determinations that are consistent with the medical literature but also have a mechanism in place to ensure that if those rules are crafted with the bottom line playing too much of a role or with an insufficient appreciation of how medical sciences have changed in the last few years, that there's a way of addressing that concern and forcing insurers to proactively anticipate that and change their rules accordingly. Yeah, Professor Class. <laughs> so, so to build on that, if the big concern is not having external, to build on that, if, if, the ex, if the concern is not having that external review, wouldn't it make sense then once an insurance company comes up with a policy, you have like a state board or an outside panel of experts look at the rules in advance before like the state approves the policy if they do, rather than do it on a case-by-case -case basis through litigation later? Because it seems like your, your initial proposal of saying, well, 
you can have the rules at the initial claim stage, but then they go out the window at the litigation stage, seems like, what's the point of the rule then? Everyone's just going to bring it to court, and it's like they weren't there in the first place, so you don't get the benefit of the rule. So this is an alternative potential approach that we discuss. We discuss it in terms of potentially mandating the use of specific rules of medical necessity. So it actually turns out like there are groups of doctors who come up with these rules, right? Like, you know, the, the National Oncologist Association, right? They have like certain clear guidelines. Well, if there's this, then you do here. Uh, there are lots of national guidelines about preventative care, right? Like men should only have a colonoscopy. I don't know, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm pretty sure I'm getting there, right? And it's like pretty well established about when it's gonna be, right? And those rules are followed pretty universally. So let's just mandate that insurers follow those rules. There are difficulties with that because then, of course, you know, the doctors who come up with it, they have their own conflicts of interest. And the reason why there even is this review in the first place. It used to be in the 70s, health insurance would cover anything your doctor said it was medically necessary. Well, your doctor says it's medically necessary, fine. Well, it turns out that doesn't work so well because doctors have incentives of their own. Now, you could say, okay, well, you'll have the insurer come up with it and then you'll have some pre-approval process. But we're talking about hundreds of rules that are incredibly complicated, that are different for every single insurer, that are changed every year. And think about the administrative apparatus that would be necessary to effectively review that. I mean, there is actually already, at least ostensibly, administrative review of insurance policies. And I don't think regulators have any idea that this is going on, even though these policies are being filed because they don't have the manpower or person power, I guess I should say, to look at it. And so I think you know, that is another solution. In theory, if we have a lot of faith, and this is why the approach we take is not to say this is the right answer or that's the right answer. It's to say, here are a menu of options and which option you think is best is gonna depend a bit on your priors. If you're the type of person who has a lot of faith in government to, engage in review using experts and police, and that would be great. I'm not sure that that makes sense. Now look, I admit the, the, the particular solution I gave, it's not, you know, it turns out that you'd only get appeals in some cases. Like right, currently right now, actually remarkably few medical necessity determinations are appealed. And that was even, that's been true historically even before the rulification. But actually, then we get into Professor Hickman's concern about discrimination. I mean, who are the people who appeal? I appealed the heck out of all of our claims, and I had fun doing it. But I'm not necessarily the representative consumer. And if we're gonna think about health equity, obviously the people who are appealing and doing so effectively are gonna be the people who already have certain advantages and resources. Uh, yeah, Bert. Professor Kritzer. So, Dan, um, this is really interesting. I know you know you had personal reasons to get buried into it at one, not too long ago. One of the things that I wonder, and I know that you've done this thing, done it before, is to look outside the United States to see to what degree do systems which are not driven by a profit motive have these same kinds of issues, and if so, how they have dealt with them. 
Yeah, no, so I haven't done a systematic review. Part of why it's so difficult to do international comparisons is because the American system is so darn weird, right? But, for instance, in the UK, things are much simpler. They only have one health system, the government creates the rules. And that'd be a great system for America, right? Death panels, right? Just bureaucrats, you die, sorry. Not medically necessary, you live. That's the problem. The problem is a political problem because one of our solutions is, you know, have you know, developed by third parties. One of those third parties can be the government. I mean, Medicare has all these rules about what it deems medically appropriate and not. Let's just have all health insurers use those. That is pretty politically uh, controversial. And also there are potential problems with that. I mean, Medicare might be too generous in some ways. Its rules might be geared or oriented towards its particular populations in ways that don't fit in other settings. Maybe we do. I mean, I do think there's something to be said for competition here. Maybe we really do want insurers investing a lot of time in understanding the underlying scientific literature and coming up with best practices in ways that outpace the government and maybe have a beneficial effect on medical care. So at least to the extent I've thought about it, and it's not been comprehensive because comparisons are so difficult, I tend to think that many of the solutions internationally are not likely to be feasible in this country because of unique political circumstances, just unique ways in which we view our health insurance system. All right, I think we're out of time. Is there, uh, you have a quick one? All right, well, thank you all so much. I hope you come and have hot chocolate. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.